0: and welcome to Oxtails, the podcast that serves up stories about history and the foods that make it from the Oxford Food Symposium. I'm your host, Anna Sigrether. Every week on Oxtails, we pick one of the papers from the symposium's long history and ask its author to come in and share their story with you. We hope you're enjoying season two so far. This is The Midway Point. If you're just joining us now, you can go back and listen to the first three episodes, as well as season one, wherever you found this episode. If you enjoy what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes and visit our website, oxfordsymposium.org.uk, for more information. There, if you're able, you can also make a donation to support this nonprofit educational podcast. And UK listeners can donate by texting Oxtails20 to 70085. That is Oxtails20, OXTALES20 to 70085. And today on the podcast, from ancient Greece to elite restaurant tables, the long and labyrinthine story of one little seed from a rather common tree. And here to tell it.
1: My name is Andrea Maraski. I'm a medieval historian. And uh, of course, I deal with, with food history specifically. I uh, also teach medieval history here in Italy. I like staying, you know, rather dynamic when it comes to food. So I don't always write about recipes, recipes, uh, or gastronomy itself, but I like to kind of study what, uh, I could say, what orbits around the table.
0: Perhaps fittingly for a medieval historian, Andrea has always found himself interested in histories that deal with the darker side of food culture. Namely, what happens to us when food becomes scarce?
1: I know it sounds a little bit macabre to say this, but I was a fan at the beginning of you know, the series like The Walking Dead, not just because of zombies, but because, you know, it's very easy to be humans in this age, because we have everything, we have supermarkets, we have electricity, we have fridges. What would happen if suddenly, tomorrow, we, we, you know, don't have electricity, we don't have fridges, we don't have all those comforts, and we have to go through a famine tomorrow, how would we behave?
0: For most of us in the West, who are used to easily accessible food and amenities, we might imagine that if everything collapsed tomorrow, there would be mass panic. But Andrea says it's not that simple.
1: Some of us would definitely, you know, lose it, would definitely lose our minds. But most of us would react in a very civilized manner. So what did people do when they lost their uh, cultural markers? Did they lose their mind? No they still wanted to feel at home in times of hardships. We need to keep trusting that things are gonna get better. We need to keep thinking that yes, we are still ourselves. We are still what we used to be yesterday and the day before yesterday. And the easiest way to do so is keeping doing the things that we used to do.
0: This urge to not lose our minds in dire situations by maintaining a sense of normalcy is something historians call civilized panic. And civilized panic tends to inspire a gastronomical phenomenon which Andrea finds very interesting. The habit of replacing one preferred but scarce food with another less appealing but available one. Today on Oxtails, we explore these questions with Andrea as he tells the story of one of the most enduring yet slandered replacement foods in European history the acorn. But first, what exactly is an acorn?
1: Well, okay, this is actually a great question, uh, uh, as simple as it could seem. But well, acorns are seeds. They are very peculiar seeds, um, I think I'm allowed to say. They are the seeds of of oak trees. And uh, like uh, very few other seeds, like uh, uh, you know chestnuts, for example. they are they turn out to be very helpful when it comes to nutrition.
0: Oak trees grow all around the world, from the west coast of North America to far East Asia. and in each of these places there are long histories of their use by people for food. But today's story for the most part, is centered around Andrea's homeland in the Mediterranean.
1: So we are in in this area the around the Mediterranean basin, we are you know used to this culture founded on three foods, no, the so-called Mediterranean traya, so uh, oil, wine, and, and bread. And to us, that's all that matters because we think that, well, I mean, we used to think, historically speaking, that uh, pretty much all we needed was there. What, what better than wine and what better than than, than wheat and what better than, than oil? But turns out that there are many other things in nature that are, if not as nutritious, but that can be definitely nutritious.
0: The lush Mediterranean hillsides contain a variety of edible wild foods, most notably chestnuts, beech nuts, and acorns. These seeds are very nutritious. Acorns have nine times as much fat as wheat, and nearly the same amount of carbohydrates and protein. But foods that grow wild on trees have always carried with them the association of being undesirable things to eat when compared with cultivated crops.
1: Exactly, exactly. Because, you know, you know, this is the thing. Especially in Europe, from, since classical times, acorns have always been associated with uh, this idea of primitiveness, because technically speaking, yes, acorns grow on trees and you just collect them, you just gather them. So from the point of view of Mediterranean culture, based on you know, bread and wine and oil, acorns do not look appealing because they do not seem to coincide with, any, with anything relating to culture. You just gather them right? But it's not as simple as that. Because as a matter of fact, you don't simply gather acorns and eat them.
0: The reason for this is that acorns are very high in tannins, the same astringent chemical found in grape skins that gives wine its drying mouthfeel. So high, in fact, that without the knowledge of how to properly prepare them, any acorns you might gather would be almost inedible. So it seems kind of unfair, or at least prejudiced, to call acorns a primitive food. And doubly so when you consider that olives require a similar amount of processing to make them edible.
1: Yeah, it's a prejudice. And in, I, I think it depends, again, on the fact that maybe oil and olive oil implies that you need to cultivate these trees, while maybe acorns seem to be just growing out of nowhere spontaneously. So it, it's kind of, it, it might have looked easier to get these acorns, less civilized in a sense.
0: And this prejudice against acorns and those who might decide to eat them is something that goes back centuries. Andrea found that the more he researched it, the further back his sources took him, much further back than the period of his expertise.
1: I had to do what many historians do in that case, so they start to also go back in time, because, you know, things don't start in the Middle Ages. Things start way earlier, at least since the time when we have the first texts, written texts, so from Herodotus, onward. So from classical texts. And many of these ancient, uh, you know, Greek and then later Roman intellectuals were constantly and consistently associating acons with the idea of primitiveness.
0: And primitiveness, from the perspective of 2,500 years ago, meant they were referring to a period even further back in time, into that shady area outside of recorded history. In doing so, these intellectuals tended to reference a particular group of people— the Arcadians and a place, Arcadia.
1: So, what was Arcadia? Arcadia is an actual and was an actual land just besides Sparta. But at some point, it also became a, a mythical land. So, it has it had this twofold, you know, existence in in reality and in literature. This mythical version of Arcadia was of a little paradise, a little Eden, where you know this primitive peoples were living in peace, away from civilization as it, as it was known, for example, in Sparta or in Athens or in other polis in, in Greece. They were, they were doing their thing. But, unlike other civilized peoples in Greece, uh, actually they were not cultivating the fields. They were not at, uh, like the Spartans. They were not like the Athenians. They did not base their life and, and economy uh, on agriculture. So they did not know anything about that Mediterranean triad we were talking about earlier. They just lived on acorns, mainly.
0: But a diet of just acorns didn't mean that the Arcadians were looked down upon by the other Greeks. When the Spartans went to the oracle at Delphi to ask whether the gods would approve of waging a war on the Arcadians...
1: They wanted to know if it would be a a successful uh, conflict or not. The oracle said... "Mm, No, I'm sorry. Don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that or or it's not going to end well. And the reason behind this was namely that these Arcadians were acorn eaters.
0: So they didn't.
1: Not only because they trusted the gods, but because, again, eating acorns uh, implied that these people, as primitive as they were, because they ate acorns, well, they were also supposed to be quite strong, quite physically threatening.
0: To be clear, these are classical myths, not documented events. But Andrea emphasizes that it doesn't always matter so much about the facts. Myths can often tell us more succinctly about a culture's attitude towards something than history books can.
1: Myths exist outside outside of time. They, They were fixed in time because, of course, they were written at some point. But I think they are there to tell so older stories than the time when they were written down. The Bible, you know, follows the same the same mechanism. The Bible contains information about the invention of agriculture. Of course, it synthesizes it in in the figures of Cain and Abel, and that is a very interesting episode in itself because it shows that Cain is the first farmer and tends to be quite aggressive against his brother, who is a shepherd. Not uh, surprisingly, so it's a sort of way to tell outside of time that when agriculture was invented. It represented a violent act towards nature and it represented a fracture from the past. Again, these are just legends, most of these. So should we believe them? No. Should we read them and try to understand the inner you know, meaning of them? Definitely, because they always have something to say.
0: The blurry dividing line between myth and history is the same one that tends to divide the primitive past from the modernized present. It exists in our minds, in a complicated space. On one hand, primitive means rude and uncivilized, but it can also make us nostalgic. For that time before time, for a past in which we were perhaps more connected to nature. And maybe we ourselves were more rugged, strong, and free. For centuries after the ancient Greeks, in Rome and then in Italy and the surrounding regions, the Arcadian tradition didn't catch on and acorn eating wasn't practiced much by humans. In fact, they were more often used in day-to-day life as a food for pigs.
1: This is a practice that, of course, is still current. And, yeah, for example, if you think about uh, Spanish, uh, Hamon, Iberico, or other, even other typology of, of hams, of course, uh, they depend on the fact that they are good because uh, the pigs are fed um, acorns.
0: On occasion, there would be famine years, when especially the wheat crops did not grow well.
1: And these people had to, at times, eat acorns.
0: But they weren't all of a sudden diving into the pig pen. Doing that would somehow be more frightening, an act of depravity. Instead, they kept on doing what they usually did. They tried to maintain normalcy. They kept making bread.
1: How do you make bread when you don't have you know, cereal flour? You make bread with and we have many treatises mentioned in this technique, you make bread with anything that you can grind into powder. If you have powder, really many different sorts, like even made out of fish, uh, even dirt, earth, roots, the bark of trees.
0: And acorns and chestnuts, too. The breads that resulted were obviously not the same as wheat breads. They were probably more like mealy crackers. But that was far less important than what they represented to the people who ate them. The ability to not lose your mind. Even though acorns were considered pig food, when you baked them into bread, they transformed into something acceptable for humans to eat. Acorn bread was the embodiment of civilized panic.
1: It didn't matter if these things were less tasty, because as long as it helps you survive, that's fine. And people learned this on the basis of experience. And it's a wonderful mechanism. It's anxiety which is put at the service of civilization.
0: On very rare occasions, though, there were times when a famine was so bad that anxiety outstripped the forces of culture. In the 11th century in Italy, demographic booms caused decades in which horrific famines ravaged the population, which we know from the recordings of a few historians of the time.
1: One most famously comes from a Norman chronicler, so this is history, Uh, it's not just literature. This guy was uh, named Godfrey Malaterra and he tells us of people in Italy who had to literally uh, steal acorns from pigs. And this is actually a very rare record because... This is the only case I was able to track where people kind of, you know, lost their minds. And with this, I mean, they kind of made a step back from the level of culture, from the level of civilization, onto the level of nature, onto the level of primitiveness, so to speak.
0: It's easy to imagine that these people were so desperate that civilized panic, at some point, turned into raw panic. Instead of processing the acorns and baking bread from them, they may have literally gotten on their hands and knees after the pigs were long eaten and eaten the acorns straight from the ground. But fortunately for everyone, this was not a common occurrence. Or at least documentation of it is rare. In fact, finding written sources of acorn eating gets difficult throughout the Middle Ages, a time when written records about food were few and those that existed were tended to be only about the food of the rich.
1: It's a little bit of a problem for food historians to, you know, study what the poor, what the the peasants used to eat, because, of course, peasants did not write, so we don't have any written records. But fortunately, uh, the thing is that uh, many recipes of the elite, of which we have many written records, of course, are clearly based on, on, on peasants' cuisine. How do we know? Because they employ foods that were normally available in the countryside for poor people.
0: This is a handy research trick that Andrea and other food scholars have figured out. If you see an aristocratic recipe, just take out the expensive ingredients, like cheese, sugar and spices. And what you're left with is most likely the peasant recipe it's based on.
1: And, um, you know, historians have have labelled it as uh, artificial ennoblement. So it's a way of placing that element of peasant cuisine inside a dish, where I also put many other elements of elite cuisine.
0: And you see this in action, in medieval cookbooks, for chestnut and other meat pies. But not really for acorns. And then, suddenly...
1: At some point, 16th century, these acorns pop up out of nowhere. I don't know why. Nobody knows why. But evidently, a couple of very influential stewards and, and chefs from the 16th century found certain dishes made with acorns tasty enough to, to serve them to, to their very wealthy lords.
0: It was the renaissance for acorns, too. But even in these recipes, acorns still weren't the main attraction.
1: Even when they appear in these important cookbooks... They are yeah always variations. You never have a recipe, a main recipe with acorns. That's not going to happen. So they always play this role of alternative or replacement food for something else, which I assume was more desirable.
0: Poor acorns, always the bridesmaid, never the bride. But they do play a crucial role in food history. By studying a food that always serves as a replacement for other foods, you can use it to trace people's attitudes towards certain ingredients and to get a fuller understanding of their living conditions and their anxieties about scarcity. And perhaps nowhere better can you see this in action than if we fast forward a few hundred years from the 16th to the 18th century and take a look at the introduction of coffee into European culture.
1: At some point, starting from the yeah, 18th and 19th centuries, you know it happened that people ran out of the basic ingredients to, to make coffee. But they still wanted to drink coffee. And so many treatises, and I'm talking about many in this case, many treatises, uh, started to feature an alternative recipes for coffee. The most common alternative was, indeed, acorn coffee.
0: Acorns lent themselves very well to being ground, roasted and brewed like coffee beans. Better than almost any other alternative, in fact.
1: Again, this was clearly an experiment that people had to make following a condition of anxiety to, in, in some sense, not the same anxiety that people experience during famines, but that little more common ordinary anxiety that we feel, that we experience when we run out of our what we want every day. Because, I mean, I myself <laughs> like to start the day like everybody else, I mean, in the Western society, uh, with a cappuccino or something like that. And if I can't have it, my day doesn't start properly. I think you know what I mean.
0: Acorn coffee probably wasn't very good, but it hit the important bases hot, bitter, dark brown, and habitual. And accessible, even in the most dire of situations. Andrea found a recipe for acorn coffee in a Civil War era cookbook from the United States.
1: And this recipe kind of struck my attention because it suggests to treat the acorns this usual manner in order to get rid of tannins and to you know to roast acorns with with bacon it's it's kind of weird and again you know I, I am italian so this of course drew my attention because the author of this cookbook says after roasting your acorns with bacon you're gonna have a splendid cup of coffee and when i read splendid i said what but it doesn't matter because it was coffee so it help people stick into their habits. And of course, context helps, because I found out that in that same recipe book, there was a recipe, uh, namely reading apple pie without apples. Beautiful. Again, another example of, of this need that we all have to keep carrying on with, with the things we, we love, we, we, we need, right? So again, acorns uh, started to play that role of substitutes, so it's a kind of a very hard history, that of acorns, the of, of, of food which comes into play from the bench.
0: But could it be that today, acorns' hard history is changing? Many undervalued whole foods from the past are starting to look better and better to eat amidst our world of over-processed foods.
1: We have this idea in mind now, nowadays, that you know, if it was eaten in the past, it must have been healthy, which is sensible because we are living in a in a very weird age, because even if we got a lot of food at our disposal, we are not sure if this food is is healthy. Actually, we we suspect it's not. But in the past, we I think we imply that things must have been healthier because. You know, there was a direct contact with food production, of course. People would cultivate the fields and would make their foods uh, not on an industrial scale, of course. And so things must have been uh, harder as a whole, but healthier when it came to, to what was on the table. I think that, that is the, that's what, what's going on.
0: This new assumption is changing the tide for acorns, which are now being elevated to high gastronomical fashion in Italy and around Europe. Several elite restaurants in the country are now serving breads made with acorn flour as well as other less-used non-wheat grains.
1: These restaurants tend to kind of rediscover ancient foods, tend to you know just forget about more recent traditional food because they want to appeal the, the customer with something different. It, it's interesting because these breads were considered inferior breads in, in medieval times, for example. They were considered breads for the poor, or breads for the monks. And in this sense, it it really was surprising that acorns, which had this very, very, uh, you know, hard history of many laws, of replacement food, of food on the bench, suddenly became so appealing from a cultural point of view that they became, you know, good to think. But this is a famous quote from from anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss, who famously noted that food must not only be good to eat, but first and foremost uh, good to think. And acorns were clearly not good to think in the past because of all those reasons that we mentioned, but have become or are you know, increasingly becoming good to think now because they belong to our past.
0: The acorn has been a lot of things to a lot of people since the age of the Arcadians. And those who continue to eat them have existed in a liminal space as representatives of a desirable golden past and the ability to survive, while also being subjected to prejudice. In other words, acorns have always been both good and bad to think. But it looks like the future for acorns as food is pretty bright. Maybe not as a famine food, born out of civilized panic, but you never know. If the time comes to steal acorns from the pigs, I don't know about you, but I'd much rather eat them as bread. Thanks for listening to Oxtails. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks to our guest today, Andrea Moraski. His symposium paper, The Seed of Hope, Acorns from Famine Food to Delicacy in European History, will be published in the 2018 Proceedings this coming summer, 2019. Follow Andrea on Twitter at Andrea underscore Maraski. Oxtails is produced by me, Anna Sigrether, and mixed by Thomas Krause. Editorial oversight is provided by Naomi Duguid and Fiona Sinclair. Our theme music is by Thomas Kraus. Other music in this episode was by Ava Glendinning, Orator, Lina Palera, Cyclos Epitaph, Midair Machine, and Kevin Ox Oxtails is made possible both by the Friends and the Board of Trustees of the Oxford Food Symposium. If you like what we're doing and want to help us make Season 3 a reality, please consider making a donation to our website, oxfordsymposium.org.uk. Listeners in the UK can also donate £20 by texting the word "oxtails 20 to 70085. That E S two zero no spaces, to 70085. To learn more about the Oxford Symposium, that website again is oxfordsymposium.org.uk. Follow us on Twitter, at OxfordFoodSimp, and Instagram, at Oxford Food Symposium. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to us and give us a good review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. We'll be back next week with some more oxtails.